This first episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast is brought to you by the Global Goals for Sustainable Development. The Global Goals are a historic plan adopted at the United Nations in 2015 to tackle global problems such as poverty, inequality and the climate crisis. 193 countries have committed to achieve these 17 goals by 2030. 2020 is a make-or-break year. Therefore, to begin this podcast series of the Chef's Manifesto podcast, we would like to call on all of you. We need you. We need every single one of you to come together and make this a great year and decade of action for people and the planet. Get involved and find out more on globalgoals.org. We the chefs. We the chefs are working together to create a better food future. future. I am George. Andy. Tom. From Nigeria. Switzerland. Los Angeles. London. India. New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is is life. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast. I'm eco-chef Tom Hunt, a food columnist, food sustainability campaigner and author of Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. And I will be your host for this new series. Over the next nine episodes, we'll be talking to a range of chefs and experts about good food and the environment, learning about how we can all contribute towards a better food system. Each episode will focus on a different topic, including biodiversity, food waste and plant-based eating spreading the word about the chef's manifesto. So if you're a chef or even a home cook and want to join the conversation, please click subscribe and share our podcast with your social network. If we're going to achieve the sustainable development goals this decade, then we need your help. Today, I'll be talking to three experts. Dutch politician Gerda Verberg, who is UN Assistant Secretary General and coordinator of the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement, also joining me today is Dr. Theo de Jaeger, president of the World Farmers Organization. But first, I'm here in the studio with Paul Noonan, the director of the Sustainable Development Goal 2 Advocacy Hub, to find out more about the Chef's Manifesto. Paul, welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's great to be here. So first of all, I'd love you to tell us what are the Sustainable Development Goals? So the Sustainable Development Goals is essentially a plan that all of the world leaders got together in 2015 and signed on to. So there are a set of goals, there's 17 of them, and these goals are around a whole range of different issues that the world faces, from climate change to um, education to hunger to poverty to life on land, life in the sea, all kinds of different issues. And essentially, they're the plan that everyone's agreed to around how can they all work to improve the way that we um, live on this earth. And so um, basically, it's it's a roadmap and it's what governments are aligning their agenda to. They're designed to look at the furthest behind first. So the people that are, are furthest away from achieving the objectives but they're also very universal, so they apply to us all. Okay, so where do chefs come in when it comes to the sustainable development goals? Because it might not be a connection that you'd like usually make. No, so when I was asked to set up uh, the Sustainable Development Goal 2 Advocacy Hub, Sustainable Development Goal 2 looks at the areas of food, agriculture, and nutrition. And so when we started to talk about that, we said, why is food, agriculture, and nutrition, even though it plays such a key role in our everyday lives, why is it not necessarily getting the focus at the global level that it should? And I think one of the challenges was that people are disconnected from the food. So it became very much about inputs and outputs. It became about nutrients. It became very health focused and, and, and somehow lost some of that enjoyment that food brings us in our everyday. And so when we started to think about that, we said, well, who are the best people placed to talk about food? Who's involved? And there's, there's a number of people involved in our food system, but we thought about chefs and chefs are at the heart of the food system. Um, they bridge the gap between farm and fork and they influence what we grow, what we put on our plates and how we cook and um, how we eat and what we think and talk about. Chefs are such influencers and that means that they sit at the heart of the system and they have a huge potential to actually... Um, bring about change and to educate people around how they can make 
informed choices that are better for people and planet. So what is the Chef's Manifesto itself? Well, so when when we started to think about chefs, we started talking to chefs from around the world and we, we, we met lots of different chefs and there was people like Chef Arthur, who I met very early on, um, who's been involved in this. I met you, Tom. There was a lot, range of chefs that I met. And what I found was there's a lot of chefs doing really, really cool stuff. Lots of chefs are focused on lots of these issues. They're making a difference in their own space on that issue, in their restaurant, in their business. Um, they're talking about it on their media, where, wherever they are. The challenge was that it was often very disconnected because they would be focused on one thing, another one would be focused on something else. There'd be chefs in the corporate space or the food development or the fine dining. Everyone was kind of doing their thing and doing really well in that thing, but it wasn't necessarily connected. So essentially we started to say, how do you help elevate this? How do you help find a way to take this further? And so we we started to think about creating a framework, a narrative, because often what is needed to bring people together is a way of talking and relating and connecting what each of us are doing individually into something bigger. And so essentially what we did was we did some online outreach. We did a series of workshops and we managed to gather 130 chefs from 38 countries to co-create the Chef's Manifesto. So this was created by chefs for chefs. And what we did was we based that on these sustainable development goals. Because they'd been decided by every country of the world, we thought, let's not argue with them. Let's see what we can contribute and what as a chef community can be, do to be a part of that. And so essentially what we did was we we looked at those goals and we um, looked at what was relevant and we went through all the detail and found where can chefs make a difference. And then from that, we created the Chef's Manifesto, which turned into these eight action areas. We're two years down the line now. What's happened over the last couple of years? So this process started about just under two years ago, and it took a little while. We, we kind of took our time to chat to people to really get buy-in from a broad range, a diverse group of chefs, because what we felt was this was really important to be owned by chefs. And so it was very much, we facilitated that process, but it was very chef-driven. And so it was chefs debating, discussing, engaging. And what that's turned into is since we launched um, at Eat Forum just under a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, we've seen the network grow. And so now we have a network with chefs in 70 countries, over 500 chefs that have signed on. And they're essentially signing on to these principles and saying, yes, we want to be a part of the network. We want to be contributing and doing our part to drive action towards the sustainable development goals, to think about what's good for people and planet, to think about how we can contribute and and drive action. And so what we've seen is under this narrative, lots of different experiments going on where chefs are actually doing things, they're trying things, and then they're sharing them through the network. They're also gathering at different global events. So we've had chefs speak everywhere from the United Nations to heads of state to community school groups. So chefs have been coming into this, using this narrative to speak in lots of places and educate people around a common framework, around the sustainable development goals and around what they can do in their own kitchens, in their own eating habits um, around food. I mean, I've been with you for this whole journey to some extent, kind of helping with the initial survey and putting the Chef's Manifesto together and contributing to a lot of these different events. And for me, it's been this eye-opening experience where we're kind of connecting all of these chefs from around the world to kind of communicate and come together for a similar goal, the sustainable development goals, which has never really happened before in the hospitality industry in this way. For me, it's a really exciting space where we can um, cook together and and learn from each other to kind of improve our own practices. And something that's really interesting about the sustainable development goals and using that as our initial framework for the Chef's Manifesto is that it isn't just about climate change. It's a multidisciplinary approach to all aspects of life because, of course, food really does impact every aspect of our lives from nutrition to even education. 
and agriculture, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, each of the areas in the manifesto, we took and basically tried to come up with something that was a little bit universal. And so it was something that could cross borders. Because I think one of the key things is sometimes people come up with solutions and they say, this solution fits for this part of the world. And then they want everyone to join them in doing that. The reality is the solutions that we need to solve some of the most complex problems are actually going to be very different depending on where you start from. So what works in London is going to be very different to what works in Bristol, which is going to be very different to what works in New Delhi, into Abuja, into Lima, into Beijing. You know, depending on where you are will depend on how you have to tackle this because we all come from a different starting point. The world is not starting at the same starting line. So when it comes to things like the ingredients grown with respect for the earth and its oceans, what we didn't want to do was tell people you must do this. What we wanted to do was say, here's some principles to think about. And so we, we grouped them under what can you ask of others and what can you do in your own kitchen? And so it's the role that chefs can play as advocates. It's the role that chefs can make in managing their kitchen. But then we also like, how do they engage with their suppliers? What do they do? So each of the action plan areas are really built around asking very specific actions that can be done in different places. And so under what you can do in your own kitchen, you can get to know your own ingredients. You can use your purchasing power. You can lead by example. Like these are things that are really practical, but you have to look at where you are to actually know what that actually means. We're not saying you all must do X. We're saying here's something that you can think about in your own situation. And so I think as we start to think about that, it's it's really thinking, well, what does that mean? So how do we pick ingredients which are grown in a way that are climate sensitive? Can we think about promoting those grains? So it might be millet, for example. A millet uses less water than rice and it's more nutritious. So that's an ingredient that's grown with respect for the earth because it uses less water. So what we're doing really is providing a toolkit for chefs to and a space for chefs to learn how they can adopt these values and turn them into real practice. I mean, and I'm glad you mentioned millets because we're going to be interviewing Anahita Dondi in our next show. And she is a passionate advocate of millets for those yeah. reasons that you just described. I mean, millets are a great example, but there's so many others like funio, there's, um, you know, sogum, there's all these different things. Now, one, when you start thinking about it, you can then start learning from one another. So you might be, you're a chef in the UK, but you can be talking with a chef in India and be inspired to think about something different. And so this is where the global nature of the Chef's Manifesto comes in. A friend of mine, a, a previous mentor, used to describe the world as a bit of a global waterbed where you push in one area and it pops out in another. And I love this image because I remember as a kid, I used to jump on my parents' waterbed and you would try and pop your sibling out the other side, you know, go in in early morning and jump <laughs> on your parents' bed and pop them out. But it's kind of the way we often see the world is we think we're going to do something here, but there's often a, a, a relationship on the other side of this planet. This planet is our home. It's not our, our city or our country. It's our, it's our planet. And so when we look at that, we have to think about how we deal with these issues in a way that also supports the whole. And so that means we actually have to be learning from one another and we have to be thinking globally as well as acting locally. And of course, kind of making sure our actions locally aren't, as a chef, aren't impacting other people around the world through the way that we source and procure our food. Yeah. And so, I mean, one of the things with the Chef's Manifesto that's, that's been a pretty key learning over the last two years, and, I, and I'd love to hear your reflections on this, because I remember one of the first events that we did that you were involved in, you kind of came to me afterwards and, and kind of said, you know, there was something special about getting together with other chefs with no agenda except to talk about food and to cook good food. And, and, and there was something that happened in that kitchen. And afterwards you said, you know, I've been working really hard on food, but it's coming together in here. I kind of fell back in love with what the craft that I have, the, the food that's there. I, I'm, I'm keen to hear like, what have you found is really different about this, this platform as a chef, Tom, in terms of, how you've found a space to engage and also to learn and, and, and contribute. 
Well, I think being there and participating and coming to the action hubs is what has been most exciting for me because otherwise, you know, up until that point, we'd been communicating through online surveys and group calls on Zoom or whatever platform. Yeah. And that was all great, but it's really hard to engage properly in that way. Whereas when you bring together kind of chefs from all over the world and put them in the same kitchen and say, just cook, then something really special happens and you start to kind of learn in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. And you start to learn little tips and tricks from, you know, like Michael Allegbody was showing me how to use the banana skins, um, which he candied into this decoration for one of the desserts that he was making. Mm. And um, it was just a good space where chefs can really dig deep and delve into these issues that really are of the utmost importance mm. for for chefs and people in the food industry today. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, the urgency that we have to address some of the food system issues is absolutely critical that we have everyone involved. And so the Chef's Manifesto really is about bringing flavor and taste back into that conversation. And I think chefs are the curators of flavor and taste and they put together and they experiment with ingredients in such a unique way that I think it's just fascinating to see when you get together and you guys can get creative, um, what happens. And so that's been something that has been, I suppose, a little bit unexpected in the way that that's happened, where chefs have just built these relationships, which start to um, really wrestle with the issues and then use the latest research, use the the knowledge that each other holds to go deeper. And um, that's something that I really hope the Chef's Manifesto continues to grow into over the coming 10 years. We've got 10 years to go on the, on the sustainable development goals and we need to see significant change, significant change, exponential change happening at a, you know, a faster rate. So we need everyone involved. And so it's, it's the hope that this network continues to grow and that people feel empowered, not grow in numbers, but grow in depth of action so people actually making differences in their kitchens, in the way that they're communicating, the way they're engaging. And I think that's the dream for this um, platform at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, food uh, and agriculture is at least the third uh, biggest contributor towards climate change and uh, one of the main contributors to biodiversity loss and a lot of these other issues that we're tackling. Um, so it's just kind of, yeah, absolutely essential. And it's also really important to remember that chefs are always coming from this point of an idea of food and taste, flavor and deliciousness. And, and, and you know, this, the solutions that we're discussing are always kind of positive and always delicious. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's so critical. And I think that's the absolute gift that I think chefs bring to the development agenda is that food is so personal. It's so part, much a part of our culture. It's part of our identity. You know, often people will say there's 7 million plus food critics on this planet, uh, 7 billion, you know, and that's because everyone is a critic in their own right. Everyone has a favorite food. Everyone has something they like to eat when they can, if they have access to it. And chefs are, are working at all different parts of the food system from school kitchens through to food development in big corporations, working on curating, bringing together ingredients into things that we consume. And, and ultimately, if that can be tied to a sustainable development goals agenda and the Chef's Manifesto provides that bridge, then I believe we can see amazing transformation occur. And so it's, it's, it's our hope that this network continues to grow with chefs like yourself, really digging deep into the issues working alongside some of the latest research that's coming out. And hopefully over this podcast, there'll be some of those guests coming and sharing some of that knowledge, that that research, that ideas will boil and simmer in, in the chef's kitchens and develop real solutions that can bring about real impact. Absolutely. And I think that's what I hope this podcast can be. It's like taking those conversations that we've been having in kitchens around the world at Manifesto Hubs and kind of broadcasting them much further. Yeah. Because, of course, over the next eight episodes, I'm going to be interviewing chefs from everywhere 
Anahita from India, Connor from Ireland, and uh, everyone. I mean, there's there's chefs from East Timor. Yeah. we're going to be speaking to as well. So yeah. it's kind of, it's exciting times. It's super exciting. I'm, and I think you're the right man for the job and I'm super excited to subscribe and listen to the next eight episodes and learn more. Brilliant. Thanks for coming on. No problem. To set the stage for the chefs I will be chatting with in the next eight episodes and to provide a bit more context about the scope and community around Sustainable Development Goal 2, I have invited two experts to join me on the podcast today. I want to find out more from them about what they believe the role of chefs is in the global conversation around sustainability and the Sustainable Development Goals. My first guest is a former politician who held the position in Minister of Agriculture, Nature and Food Quality in the Netherlands. She was elected as chair of the UN Commission on Sustainable Development and is chair of the UN Committee on World Food Security. She now works as UN Assistant Secretary General and coordinator of the Scaling Up Nutrition Movement. Gerda joins us down the line from the Netherlands to tell us more. Gerda Verberg, welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Hello, how are you? I'm brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I feel humbled, really, to be talking with you today. It's for, for me as a kind of chef and, well, environmental activist, it's really inspiring to connect and learn from people such as yourself who are creating such change on a real global level. I did my part and I'm still doing my part, but it has to be done by people like you, uh, by farmers, by consumers, by all of us, because only by working together, changing our food habits, the way we treat ourselves and our families and uh, the people surrounding us and the way we treat uh, the, the planet can bring the, the right change. So that leads straight into my first question, which is, how can we communicate the Sustainable Development Goals to chefs and how can they contribute towards the Sustainable Development Goals themselves? Well, uh, my first recommendation would be keep it simple because uh, chefs are already doing great jobs. I consider chefs as a kind of disc jockeys um, uh, bringing <laughs> people and good food and a good atmosphere together because good food and healthy food uh, are important to influence uh, people's uh, well-being, mindset, health, uh, if you want, and uh, people like yourself, but also um, our, uh, our, our uh, other chefs, uh, uh, the more than uh, 200 people or chefs who have signed the Chef's Manifesto. Uh, they are doing, you're doing a great job in um, bringing people in, showing them how important, but also how easy it is to source your food uh, close by and to make the, the most amazing and tasty and healthy uh, meals. So um, don't make it too difficult. And um, the other thing is there are 17 sustainable development uh, goals. Ending hunger and malnutrition um, is in sustainable goal number two. But if you uh, continue to operate and to be the champion for um, for cozy, uh, uh, affordable meals um, that are tasty and healthy uh, is an investment in people. And if you invest in people, people are happy if they feel good to also invest in other things like better education, better health, treating the climate or the summit, uh, the, the planet uh, well, um, taking care of uh, natural resources and um, uh, bringing peace and stability. So please don't make it too, too complicated, but continue to do where you, what you are already uh, doing so well. Brilliant. Thank you. I mean, it seems to me like through the work I've done, the more I learn about agriculture and our food system, it seems like a no-brainer. Good food is actually not only good for our own health, but the health of the planet. It's true. That's exactly uh, true. And um, we read uh, a lot and hear a lot about uh, Greta Thunberg these, uh, uh, these days, and she's doing a great job. Uh, but uh, SN Movement, active in 61 member uh, countries, where people and the government realizes that um, development, uh, including better nutrition and better investment uh, in people, can only done from a country uh, uh, 
perspective, um, we they realize that you can only save the planet and improve climate if you also invest in people. So um, uh, working with many young people, and I'm quite sure, Tom, that you are doing the same, you try to encourage young people to not only step up for the planet, but also for investment in opportunities for uh, young people, starting with, um, with babies uh, when they are still unborn. So from pregnancy of the mother until the second birthday of a child is so decisive for, um, uh, for the development of the physical condition, but also for the brain development. So nutrition, good nutrition is key and core to uh, invest in a good start in life for uh, people and then maintaining it during the whole childhood is um, uh, supporting people in being ready to improve their own life, to maintain their family, to earn a decent income, um, and to also take good care of our planet. So I'm very much in favor of, all, of also encouraging our people to um, fight, stand up for investing in people. Brilliant. And I feel the same way, I mean, in terms of investing in our farmers, because really, you know, they're the people that make our food taste delicious first and foremost. The chefs, you know, if they receive a good ingredient from a farmer, they don't need to do anything to it to make it taste lovely. Um, yeah. And of course, the nutrition of that food is, is vital. So, I mean, I've, I've worked a bit with Action Against Hunger or Action Contra La Femme and traveled to India where I kind of learnt and experienced about kind of malnutrition in other countries. And it sounds like that's maybe part of your scaling up nutrition movement project. It'd be lovely to hear a bit more about that movement. Yeah, um, uh, but let first let me emphasize what you said about farmers. They are really the producers and they are all happy to produce what consumers want. Uh, tasty, healthy, um, nutritious, etc. But very often they say, then please make sure that we get a decent price, that we have a, a good market and that we can, uh, can have a, a decent income so that we can send our children to school and make a, a living and continue to, to do what you want. So this is also part of the, of the conversation. About the Sun Movement, the Sun Movement um, uh, will celebrate its 10th anniversary uh, as a movement uh, and um, counting back, you can imagine we started in 2010. Uh, why did we start uh, the Sun Movement? It was because of a report telling, a global report uh, of the Lancet, a very uh, recognized uh, high-level commission. Um, and uh, one of the conclusions there was the world will never be able to end hunger and malnutrition because of the very fragmented approach. Every player, be it civil society, governments, uh, um, uh, communities, uh, donors, um, World Bank, all players, they all do their own projects and programs. Um, you really need to work together. The second finding was that um, ending hunger and malnutrition and investing in people is a matter of political will. So with these two, uh, uh, these two ingredients, the um, founding fathers and mothers of the Sun Movement started to bring players together. And the, um, the uh, principles are uh, um, very easy, but a little bit more complicated to implement. First of all, a government of a country needs to um, uh, draft a letter uh, saying, we want to be uh, responsible, we want to take the initiative to end hunger and malnutrition in our country. And we are ready to bring the different players together, the Department of Health, agriculture, social protection, education, uh, planning, socioeconomic development and finance, of course, to bring to make a multi-sectoral um, national nutrition plan that is all round and taking into account all the uh, parts of good nutrition. Um, and the second point is that 
the, that you need to work together to implement it, also with civil society, with uh, investors who and donors who need to align behind the initiative and the responsibility of uh, the government, the UN organizations that are around, but also with uh, private sector companies. Because um, having good food is very often, uh, or buying good food, is, uh, is working with the private sector. And for very right reasons, many consumers and um, activists consider private sector still as part of the problem, which they are. But let's also uh, take it from the other uh, way around. We only will find um, sustainable uh, and, and healthy and nutritious solutions if we are putting pressure, uh, encourage um, uh, private sector, create the right uh, the right circumstances, and and um, um, uh, and, and legislation for them to become uh, part of the solution. And what we see uh, over the last two, three years is that more and more food companies are uh, asking us, what can we do? How can we support uh, more nutritious uh, uh, food and, and, and supporting people to have healthy diets? So um, it's quite complicated to get there. People at country level do it themselves, um, um, but we are supporting them because we know how to bring the right players together and how to make them work together. Amazing. And it seems to me like as, as an independent kind of restaurant owner and as a home cook, I often feel like, you know, hey, it's not me as an individual. It's the system. It is these this the private sector. It's these huge companies that really have the monopoly over our farmers and how well they get paid. But of course, as you mentioned, that's changing and they're, they're showing an interest in sustainable farming systems now. And I would say even trying to learn a little bit from the small smaller kind of farmers and private sector in terms of improving their sustainability. It's true. It's true. And um, of course, you still have the, the, the big naughty uh, companies, but there are more and more starting very often indeed with small and medium sized uh, uh, enterprises who desperately want to uh, be part of the solution. As Sun Movement, for instance, we are working with several uh, networks. We have a civil society network, a donor network, a UN network and a business network. But in the business network at country level, more and more small uh, uh, enterprises uh, wants to get an opportunity to contribute uh, to the development through better nutritious and through uh, more healthier food, want to contribute to the development of their uh, country. And what we see is that you, if you bring these um, small and medium-sized companies together with the bigger companies, that bigger companies are ready to support uh, also um, small and medium-sized companies um, in a technical way in training their people and there is more and more willingness with the bigger companies to respond to clear requests so what we notice is that of course we can we keep a need to keep a sharp eye on the naughty uh, companies who will, would like to uh, to try to um, make young pe make young young people as young as possible addicted to um, sugary uh, drinks and uh, and fast food. Um, but we need to uh, to build an agenda and to know what we want them to do and how to behave and to have incentives, but also sticks um, uh, in order to support them or direct them into that direction. So um, turning your back to these companies is not the way forward, um, but turning around and having the critical dialogue and building a critical um, uh, collaboration is the way forward. And it's coming more and more uh, uh, together because also um, uh, more uh, investors and banks now want to contribute to a more sustainable uh, development um, uh, so that they also can encourage it. We're not there yet, but we are making progress and we need everybody to push and pull um, uh, consumers, but also entrepreneurs, uh, companies and um uh, NGOs and um, decision makers and investors into the right direction. 
Absolutely. So we've got time for one more question. Um, so I wanted to ask you, it's, it's 2020. Why is this a crucial moment in time for the Sustainable Development Goals? Um, because we uh, there are 17 Sustainable uh, Development Goals. It is the uh, sustainability agenda for the whole world. This is not only for development uh, countries, but it's also for countries like, like the UK, uh, Europe, United States, uh, China. Every country needs to uh, implement the Sustainable Development uh, uh, Goals. And if we are successful in implementing the sustainable development goals this world will be a better place for everyone every child every woman every man uh, but also for the planet for every uh, animal for every tree every flower um, so it's 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 a very smart um, agenda you will not be able to reach one uh, point one agenda one sustainable development goal without investing in the other and only if people um, do not turn their back to each other but are ready to work together from health with education from farmers to pharmaceuticals from consumers to uh, uh, um, um, chefs for instance then we can uh, make it happen so 20 2020 is five years after the uh, the start of the Sustainable uh, Development Goals agenda, um, and we are entering the decade of delivery. And as Sun Movement, we see that things can move in the field of uh, nutrition. And if you can do it in the field of uh, good food and nutrition, you can do it in every uh, on every issue, uh, crucial issues, health, uh, education, uh, gender equality, innovation, sustainability, uh, um, natural resources, etc. So 10 years to uh, to go. Um, uh, only if we join forces and we can do it every day from where we stand leading from where we stand you a chef from your uh, restaurant bringing people around the table sourcing close by uh, bringing also um, your consumers uh, uh, up and and making them uh, recognizing the importance of uh, good food um, i from my position as coordinator of a certain movement but we all can lead from where we are if we are willing to collaborate what an inspiring message. Thank you so much, Gerda. It was an inspiring conversation and I'm really happy we had this time. Thank you for coming on the show. Tom, all the best with your uh, podcast. Uh, you're a very inspiring chef. I'm now joined by an expert who will be able to tell us much more about the importance of smallholder farmers and their key role in our food system. He's a farmer himself from South Africa and holds the position of president of the World Farmers Organization and chairman of SAI and AgriAl Africa. Dr. Theo Diego, hello and welcome. Good morning. What a privilege to have this interview with you. Thank you. I'm incredibly inspired to be able to talk to you today. First, I'd really like to know how, how you began farming yourself. Yeah, actually, I, I started farming rather late in my life, in my late uh, 30s. Okay. Um, I, I, before that, I was a negotiator between trade unions and mining companies. And I, I did some labor relations work on a big farm where the, the, the farmer... Um, got sick and then he asked me not to leave the farm until he's back and he did not come back until a year later so i started farming and when he got back i bought the farm next door i fell in love with the lifestyle and it was what i always wanted to do and i thought i would only have my break once i i'm retired oh wow so where was the farm and what were you growing it was in Trichardsdal, um, which is a very very small village i think officially it has a total population of one um, between Sanin and Hootspreet in the Limpopo province of, of uh, South Africa, close to the Zimbabwean and Mozambican borders. And I started farming with uh, ornamental palm trees and then moved to vegetables. It must have been such a rewarding um, vocation. Do you, are you still growing any food now? Uh, I lost that farm in the land reform process in South Africa. And then bought a fruit farm closer to, to, to town, and I'm now uh, growing avocados, macadamias, and timber. Delicious. So I, what I'd love to know, really, is that's led to you becoming the president of the World Farmers Organization, that and many other things. How have you found yourself in this position? And can you tell us a little bit about what it involves, please? Yes, uh, how I got here was simply 
by taking each step up the ladder, I started um, taking responsibility for the land reform program in my local farmers association. So it became my job in the district and then in the province. I became president of Agri Limpopo and then Agri South Africa. And then I was the president of Sakao, our Southern African Confederation of Agricultural Unions, which organizes farmers from Cape Town to Lake Victoria and Tanzania and from Madagascar to Angola. And then I became the president of the Pan-African Farmers Organization for the few years. And that was my constituency to, to vote me in at the World Farmers Organization. Now, the World Farmers Organization represent at this stage um, 86 uh, national farmers organizations from across the globe. We have um, members on all six of the continents, and we literally represent some of the smallest and the poorest farmers in the world and some of the biggest industrial-scale farmers in the world, farming with just about everything you can imagine. So it is not an easy um, task to get consensus and to develop policy because of the diverseness of our constituency. Most of the farms across the world are small farms, aren't they? Smaller than two hectares. But the, obviously the World Farming Organization is a, is a very broad, overarching organization. Do you support the, like small farms like the bigger farms as well? Oh, yes. Um, there are more small farmers than large-scale farmers. So that's the biggest part of our constituency. And that's a, really a very challenging part too. Um, remember, that's the constituency that got me into the World Farmers Organization through the African platforms. And it's so ironic that that is the part of producers of food and fiber who are the most food insecure. And some of these farmers are literally the poorest people in the world. And it is often um, the part that's neglected and whose voice is not being heard in global debates, whether it's on food chains or on climate change or on the future of family farming um, or on mechanization and digitalization. Uh, so it's, it, it's extremely important that within our lifetime, we address the biggest challenge of our generation, which is poverty and hunger. And we address it there where it can really make a difference, grassroots level amongst those farmers. Now, in Africa, I firmly believe it's possible. We have everything which money cannot buy. The most wonderful climate, you know, this continent is right in the middle of the globe, half of it north and half of it south. We have some of the most fertile soils. We have these wonderful water resources. What we lack can be brought about through investment and good policies, such as the linkages to markets, technology, expertise, um, and, and, and equipment. I mean, for me, kind of learning about agriculture, what really kind of flipped everything on its head was learning that small farmers produce the majority of our food across the planet, even, you know, the food that we're buying in the supermarkets here. And in, in, in some ways, we're, we're led to believe that actually we're eating food from an industrial process when, in fact, it's, it's far more complex than that, isn't it? Oh, yes. The food system is extremely complex. And um, it, it, it is in, in many ways um, inefficient and, and broken. If it was not, we would not have had the, the, the problems with hunger and poverty across the globe, with um, inequality and, and, and all the trade issues which we have now, which simply do not contribute to, to any solutions. But, you know, farmers by their very nature are very practical people. The, the first question in a farmer's organization is always, what does this mean for me on my farm, on the little piece of this planet of which I'm the custodian? What must I do next or what must I do different? And if you cannot answer that, it is very hard to change anything or even to fix anything. It is simply the largest profession in the world involving more people than, than, than any other and the oldest. So people are very fixed in their ways. It's also um, by their very nature, farmers are conservative people um, all over the globe, no matter where you go. And when I say conservative, I do not mean it in political or religious terms, but more in terms of family values. F families on farms live closer to each other than any other family um, and, and spend more time with each other. So when, when you refer to smallholders, it is much more than just a system of production. 
It is a social system and it's a cultural system which is very deeply rooted. And so what I'd love to know is how do you see this relating to the Sustainable Development Goals? Well, the Sustainable Development Goals in in farmer's language, and, and, and forgive me, I'm not an academic or a scientist, in farmer's language, it is in a global agreement between scientists and politicians and big business and small business to make this planet a better place for all. And, and, and to get there, these 17 areas of focus of priorities was identified, um, of which the first is addressing hunger, uh, poverty, and then addressing hunger, SDG2. But um, the vast majority of these 17 goals have a, a, a very direct implication for farmers, either as producers or as beneficiaries or as, as um, consumers. And this is why across the globe you will, would see that national, supranational, and even then the World Farmers Organization latched onto these development goals and asked, what is our role in it and what, what can we do to make our contribution towards that? So why do you think it's important that chefs are also part of this conversation as well as the farmers? Well, <laughs> it's a very interesting question. There's much more to this question than a simple answer. Um, <laughs> and and, and, and the, to, to boil it down to its essence, in, in agriculture, we speak of value chains always. Farmers do not represent the food system. We are one big link in a long chain, which starts at financing and crop insurance and the inputs, the seeds, the diesel, the mechanization, the fertilizers. And it ends with the consumer. It ends on a plate. And we call it a chain because you cannot push a chain. You can only pull a chain. The biggest puller, the only puller, is the consumer. We can only produce what the consumer would buy from us. And on the consumer, that consumer has two faces. The one is somebody in a household who decides what we will have for dinner or for lunch today, and it is usually a woman. Um, so the, a mother in a house is the most important person in the life of a farmer. But then those who do not eat in their families, um, they, they eat at, in, a, in, a, in a restaurant, in a hotel, and, and, and there it is a chef. Now, different to uh, the, the household decision maker on what we will have for lunch or dinner, chefs are pacemakers. They uh, establish new fashions and new trends. Um, th th they actually broaden the horizons of the food systems all the time. So the first opportunity I ever had to meet Paul Newman um, as a, a global representative of the chef profession, it, it was one of the biggest moments in my life. It was in New York, and I said to him, I've been looking forward to this my whole life. And there's something that's wrong in the relationship between farmers and chefs. We, we, we both work with exactly the same thing. Nothing which you use do not originate on our farms. The, 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 the problem is that we come into your restaurants much more often than you come onto our farms, and, and I'm here to change that. That's so inspiring to hear, and I'm completely with you. I mean, I've been really fortunate. Uh, my restaurant in Bristol works directly with the farmers in our area, so we're sourcing almost 90% of our produce from the local farmers within 50 miles who are all small farms practicing really good sustainable farming methods and for me that's kind of transformed my uh, understanding of food what now the my latest cookbook eating for pleasure people and planet isn't just like kind of a bunch of recipes it's really a cookbook about farming and uh, and this is kind of what working with the chef's manifesto and hearing and talking to people like you is what's kind of and opened my eyes to this really and also kind of working directly with the farms which i would encourage all chefs to do as much as they can even if it's just with some you know hero ingredients that they want to seasonalize their menu with but um i guess Sticking with the Sustainable Development Goals, it's the decade of delivery. It's 2020. Why is this such a crucial point in time uh, regarding the Sustainable Development Goals and, goals and all the work that we're doing as a community of chefs, farmers, and as the World Farming Organization? 
It is probably because the the systems we do not that we, which we have now um, is simply not working. It is not working for us as farmers. It's not working for the environment. It's not working for the consumers. Uh, if it if it did work, we would not have had 821 million undernourished people. Uh, we would not have had the, the the health and the climate issues, which really defines the battle of our times. And in, we need to change it, and we we, we need to change it by consensus. Um, we need to, to to talk about what these food systems are like now and, 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 and where it needs to be changed. And, and it's going to cost a lot to change food systems. We also need to discuss where, where, where that money should come from. Um, now, can you imagine what a powerful partnership uh, we could have if the world's farmers and the world's chefs took hands and say, what should our um, food system look like in 20 years from now and in 30 years from now. And, and I have this romantic dream of having young farmers and young, young chefs to start this discussion and then take this discussion beyond advocacy to take it into programs, projects, implementation on grassroots le uh, level. Because the one thing which I found in common between young farmers and young chefs is this pride on the plate. They are proud of what they serve up. They have competitions against each other on, 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 on what's the best and the most innovative. And, and, and I dream of a day when we can share that pride between the producer and the one who dish it up. That's such an inspiring uh, message to leave the conversation. Thank you so much, Theo. Uh, what a privilege and a pleasure. Uh, hope to meet you sometime soon. I'm really looking forward to that. And that's all for this episode, but I hope you can join me next time when we'll be talking to chefs Anahita Dondi and Manjeet Gill, all the way from India, to Irish vegetable grower Mike Kelly and Peruvian chef Palmiro Acampo about cooking with and growing ingredients with respect for the earth and its oceans, the first thematic area of the chef's manifesto. If you're a chef or even a home cook, then please join us by clicking subscribe. And if you like what we're doing, please support us by writing a review and sharing our podcast with your friends. If we're going to achieve the sustainable development goals this decade, then we need your help. I hope you can join me next time. Goodbye for now. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth. Friendly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity and improved animal welfare. Investment in livelihoods. Value natural resources. And reduce waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal. Celebration of local and seasonal food. A focus on plant-based ingredients. Education on food safety. And healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible, accessible and affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians. Suppliers. Farmers. Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. <laughs>